This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. Humanism is a progressive worldview that, without supernaturalism, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead meaningful, ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of humanity. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our staff or board of directors. It's my pleasure to introduce today um, Donald Gutstein. Uh, Gutstein, the big... No, Gutstein. (laughs) Gutstein, I'm sorry. The big stall. Let me tell you a little bit about Donald. Uh, Donald is a former professor in the School of Communication at Simon Fraser University and co-director of Newswatch Canada, a media monitoring project at the school. He is author of Harperism, how Stephen Harper and his think tank colleagues have transformed Canada as well as four other books on the links between large corporations, politics, and media. He lives in Vancouver. His latest book, The Big Stall, which you've all heard about, uh, traces the origins the origins of the government's climate change plan back to the energy sector itself, in particular big oil. It shows how, in the last 15 years, big oil has infiltrated provincial and federal governments, academia, media, and nonprofit sector to sway government and public opinion on the realities of climate change and what needs to be done about it. Please welcome Donald Gutstein to our meeting today. Donald. Thank you very much, Dan, for that introduction. And I want to thank Ian for um, inviting me to be be here with you today. Uh, I was here about three years ago um, to talk about Harperism, so it's great to be back again. And um, I think there's some new faces, but uh, great anyway. Sharon Gregson, I just want to put in a a word for her. I I first met her about um, 26 years ago when when my son went into daycare up at SFU and she's she was advocating for 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 child care then and she's still advocating for it today and she's she's doing a fantastic job so I'm very happy to hear that she's she's going to be here next week uh, and the other thing is my wife insisted that I bring my my books in in this bag she makes these uh, bags to take to the save on you know so they're great great so that's all fits in very nicely. And I want to thank my publisher, James Lorimer, for, for the title of this book. I mean, it's, it's the best title I've ever had, because it just tells every, it just says what's in the book so clearly, the big stall, how big oil and think tanks are blocking action on climate change in Canada. And so it's really about big oil and think tanks and what they're actually doing to, um, to stop progress on addressing climate change. And that's what the book is really about, is say everything they've done over 30 years since global warming became um, an issue in in, uh, June of 1988, when um, uh, James Hansen, the NASA climate scientist, uh, testified before the US Congress that the greenhouse effect was here. So 30 years later, hardly anything's happened, except it's gotten much worse, right? What, what he's saying now is if we had started addressing it back then, we would have, have had a better chance of achieving the, the zero carbon economy. And I'm gonna talk a bit about that. 
So big oil, the major multinational corporations, they've accumulated enormous power and wealth over a century. And, and this is important, an unrivaled ability to influence government. And, and I'll say a few words about that. Think tanks, well, I'm looking at a particular type of think tank called neoliberal. And I, neoliberalism was a feature of the book on Harperism because he was a strong proponent of that approach. And basically, and there's been millions of articles and books written about it, but I just like to think of this as the neoliberalism as the ideology that sees the role of government to create and enforce markets and prop them up when they fail. So it's not like libertarianism where you say, the, sm the smaller the government, the better, just leave us alone. It's not that at all. It goes, it has some of those, uh, some of those characteristics, but goes much further in saying there's a very, very precise role for, for government in, in, in creating and enforcing markets because its vision is a, a world in which only markets have power and governments have no power except to, to reinforce markets. Um, and the key thing about these think tanks is that neoliberals uh, know that politicians govern us, but ideas govern politicians. So whoever can control the ideas, let's say about what to do about climate change, will win the day. And so the neoliberal think tanks, academics, university departments that are all in that, in that area, and I have a lot of information about that. They've been very successful in promoting the kind of market-driven solution to, to climate change, which is really, as I try to show, is really no solution at all. All it does is perpetuate the ongoing market for, for fossil fuels. So where we're at today is, while we're quibbling away about carbon taxes, these yes, no uh, rebates, give it all back, use it for, for strong actions like um, um, public transit. So this debate is going on and on. Meanwhile, big oil is just humming along, you know, making record profits and turning, turning climate, the climate crisis into a market opportunity. Okay, and that I think is a key message in the book. It's not a planetary emergency anymore. It's a, it's a market opportunity. If we look at the, um, the um, rhetoric that Justin Trudeau has been uh, uttering since he, even before he became prime minister, you can see that in action. And Trudeau's um, purchase of the Trans Mountain Pipeline was pure neoliberalism in the sense that um, what his father did, I, I have a, the book actually starts talking about Pierre Trudeau and comparing what the two of them did. Pierre Trudeau, as most of you will remember, created Petro-Canada and he brought in the National Energy Program, which if you actually look at it, was good. It's been, it's been demonized by big oil, by the corporate media, and by, 
by Washington, D.C. And, and the Alberta government. But actually, what it tried to do was um, secure oil supply for Canadians at a, at a reasonable cost. And that meant challenging big oil. Uh, Justin, when he bought Trans Mountain Pipeline, was not for the benefit of Canadian consumers by any stretch of the imagination. Its purpose was to protect the oil sands industry and, and make sure it had greater capacity. And whether that was of any benefit to Canadians or not doesn't seem to be part of his thinking. And um, it's all part of, of Big Oil's grand bargain. What, what the business community has said is, you give us pipelines, we'll acquiesce to carbon pricing. This is what both Justin Trudeau and Rachel Notley in Alberta have done. The Business Council of Canada, its name has changed over time. First it was the Canadian, uh, the, the Business Council on National Issues, the Canadian Council of Chief Executives, and now it's just simply the Business Council of Canada. Whatever its name, it's an organization of 150 chief executives from some of the biggest companies in Canada. And it's had enormous influence over many decades in influencing what governments do, what government even conceive of as being possible to do. And so um, in 2007, and that's over a decade ago, they published a report titled Clean Growth building a Canadian environmental superpower, 2007. This document called for a national energy strategy, carbon reduction targets that protected corporate profits, investment in clean technology, and appropriate carbon pricing, 2007. 2016, Justin Trudeau's government publishes its report, Pan-Canadian Framework for clean growth and climate change. You look at the two documents and they're almost word for word, right? Exactly the same things that Big Oil was asking for 11 years ago. That's what Trudeau says, this is the direction Canada has to go in. Now, why the 11 year gap between the two documents? Uh, the answer is Stephen Harper. Stephen Harper was prime minister for most of those years. And even though he was a ferocious advocate for energy development, it had to be done his way. And the, um, the chief executives, when they talked about a national energy strategy, what they meant was federal and provincial governments had to get it out, get it together and come to a compromise, come to a resolution. In contrast to what Pierre Trudeau did was the National Energy Program was imposed on the country from, from Ottawa. And that was, they, they never wanted that to happen again. Harper hated federal, provincial, um, you know, like uh, negotiations, conferences. And so he wouldn't go anywhere near that. The other thing is they wanted, they said, we'll have a carbon tax. Because actually for big business, um, having a tax is good. 
as as a, compared to just denying things and and um, because it, it creates certainty about what their future is going to be, and then they can plan for their future growth and development. Anyway, Harper was totally against such a such a tax, so it had to just kind of um, wait until somebody more amenable to corporate influence came into power, and that was Justin Trudeau. So I, I of course, today being Remembrance Day, I, I didn't want to pass it by without a few comments. Remembrance Day gives us many things to think about, wars, but one thing that's rarely talked about is how wars create tremendous market opportunities. I hate, you know, like I hate to be crass about this. So World War I created the oil market. Before the war, there was an oil glut because the only use for oil was as kerosene for lighting. When the war started, transportation was provided by horses. There was one horse for every three soldiers, by coal-driven trains, and of course they could only go wherever there were railway tracks, and then coal-driven ships. And their problem was they required lengthy refueling stops. By the end of the war, and I just got to read this list, oil propelled motor cars, motorcycles, airplanes, trucks, ships, submarines, even tanks changed warfare forever, scaling up the efficiency of battlefield carnage. It's been claimed that the Allies won the war because of their superior access to oil. As Lord Curzon said, the Allied cause had floated to victory on a wave of oil. The war was largely about the struggle for control of Middle East oil. When Turkey came into the war on the German side, British soldiers were rushed to defend the Abadan refinery in, in what was then known as Persia, Iran, today. After the war, the British and French victors carved up the Middle East into zones, securing access to oil reserves. The French, Syria, the British, Iraq. And in the process of carving up the Middle East, they created the failing states of, of Syria and Iraq. Germany, meanwhile, as a loser, struggled in the two decades between the wars to um, to secure access to ample oil supplies to fuel its vast machine. So what I conclude from all of that is that a nation standing in the world, its power and prestige depends in large part on its access to oil. And that's still the case today. So if we need to get rid of oil to maintain a livable planet, our task is not going to be easy because of the entrenched interest. And it's not just governments, because of their need for oil and their need for oil revenues, but it's the oil companies themselves. Four or five companies, including Royal Dutch Shell, Standard Oil, and Gulf, came out of the, uh, came out of the war with a virtual monopoly over oil. And over the decades, they've perfected their ability to influence governments, 
overturning them when they stood in the way of exploration and exploitation. One well-known example was the overthrow of Iranian President Mohammad Mossadegh in a coup sponsored by the British and the CIA in 1953. And what was Mossadegh's crime? He, he had nationalized the Anglo-Iranian oil company and had to go. As a result of the wars, the overthrow of governments, and the overweening existence on oil, we have become a petroculture. Oil goes to the very essence of our economy, our society, our way of life. We can walk over here, walk the seven kilometers, or we can take an oil-driven vehicle to get here. So moving off oil will be no easy task, especially governments working hand-in-hand -hand with big oil to get the resource out of the ground and the revenues into their coffers. Okay. Key to stopping the further accumulation of greenhouse gases and preventing a global, sorry, global temperature increase of more than two degrees Celsius is the zero carbon economy. Here we don't pump any more carbon into the atmosphere at all. We may even have to figure out how to withdraw carbon from the atmosphere. And it was just a month ago that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the key global body studying this, released a special report on keeping global warming below a 1.5 degree increase, Celsius increase. We're already at slightly more than one degree since the beginning of the industrial era. And you can, see the, you can already see the impacts. Extreme weather events, rising ocean levels, habitat destruction, and much more. The 2015 Paris Agreement said we can have no more than two degrees, and let's aim for this 1.5. This new report tells us what we need to do to keep to that limit. Cut carbon dioxide levels 45% below 2010 levels by 2030 and get to net zero by 2050. That's just 32 years away. Meanwhile, just to take one example of millions, the LNG Canada plant in Kitimat will come on stream in 2024, emitting between four and eight million tons of carbon a year. And that's gotta be for at least 40 years because that's how long the plant is designed for, to make, to make a profit. And that's well beyond the 2050 target. And why did they say four and eight million? Well, the government says it's four million, where, while the environmental group says it's eight million. When you include all the, all the carbon dioxide and methane that's um, released when the, the gas is fracked, when it's transmitted to the plant, and et cetera, et cetera. So the big stall explains how big oil worked internationally at the United Nations and in Canada with Trudeau and Notley to ensure we never talked about a zero carbon economy, only a low carbon one. Low carbon economy is, is vague. It can mean anything you want it to. Even the LNG Canada plant in Kitimat it claims it's low carbon, right? 
So I, I just wonder, do we ever talk about zero carbon, which is the only real reality we've got to end up facing? So yesterday I did a little survey of daily newspapers in Canada using um, a, a library database, you know, that you can get in any library. The question I asked the database, over the past year, how many times did the papers mention zero carbon economy and how many times low carbon economy? And frankly, I thought I would know the results, but they were still surprising. Over the last year, low carbon economy was mentioned in daily newspapers across Canada 668 times. Zero carbon economy, 11 times. In the Globe and Mail, it was 27 to 1. In the Vancouver Sun, 13 to 0. They didn't even mention zero carbon economy. So zero carbon economy has a very precise meaning. No more carbon. Low carbon economy can mean anything you want it to. So we're actually being hoodwinked herded away from where we need to be going into some vague other direction. Big oil has been doing this since global warming became a public issue in 1988. And I just, I, I mentioned this before, but I just want to say again, that's when NASA climate scientist James Hansen told the U.S. Senate that it was 99% certain that the greenhouse effect was here. Was, was here. It, that year, was a, um, the U.S. was experiencing an extremely hot summer, which is not so unusual anymore, with a prolonged drought, and Hurricane Gilbert was the first billion-dollar weather event. As well, there were also news reports about a 100-mile-long by 25-mile-wide chunk of ice falling off from Antarctica. And Hansen, because of all these things that were in the public mind, Hansen made the front page of nearly every daily newspaper and every evening news broadcast. It was big news, but 30 years later, Virtually nothing has been done to even slow down the greenhouse effect. Meanwhile, we keep pumping more and more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Last year, we hit 410 parts per million when scientists are saying 350 parts per million has to be the limit before extreme climate change could occur. That level, 410 parts per million, as best as I could find out, is a level not seen since the middle Pliocene era, three million years ago, okay? So why did we fail so badly? So I'm gonna go through a list of everything big oil has been doing over that 30 year period to keep us from looking at what we really need to look at. So first, big oil denied that global warming was occurring. The oil industry spent tens of millions of dollars to fund neoliberal think tanks to promote the denial message. In the US, the Heartland and Competitive Enterprise Institutes led the charge. In Canada, it was our own Fraser Institute here in Vancouver, and in Regina and Winnipeg, 
the Frontier Center for Public Policy. They were both leading voices for denial. And if you have questions about that, there's so much interesting information about that. And it really worked. Even today, large segments of the Canadian, well, segments, not necessarily majorities, but significant segments of the Canadian population, particularly in the Prairie Provinces, and especially members of the Conservative Party, are still questioning whether man-made global warming is real. And I don't have to mention to you, in the US, that person who still claims to that global warming is, is not real. I'm not, not going to say the name or anything. <laughs> so denial set back action on climate change by at least a decade. Then, when the evidence for global warming became more compelling, Big Oil said, well, okay, we have to deal with it, but the only way to deal with it and not ruin the economy is through voluntary measures. Let companies volunteer to cut their emissions. Of course, they will be good corporate citizens, we were assured. The Jean Chrétien, Chrétien government welcomed this approach with open arms. But under the voluntary compliance scheme, carbon emissions actually increased by 24%. So they weren't such good corporate citizens after all. And that set us back even further. Then they said, well, let's try carbon markets where companies can trade permits to pollute. Carbon markets became firmly entrenched in Europe and were starting to take hold here in North America, first in California, then in Quebec, and then Ontario just came on board to be part of this carbon market just before Doug Ford was, was elected and he immediately pulled out and that was sort of like the end, the end of it. And it's just as well because carbon markets don't really work. At best, they allow polluters to profit from their polluting activities. You, because all of a sudden pollution has a value and you can buy and sell it and the value can go up and down, right? Just, just like a market. So no progress was made there. Finally, many jurisdictions have switched to carbon taxes. It started right here in BC in 2008 when Gordon Campbell was, um, was the premier and then Alberta in 2015 and Canada-wide in in 2016. But carbon pricing has deteriorated into a dreary hair pull between the supporters and opponents, and every day the papers are filled with, with these debates. But here's the thing, carbon pricing doesn't work. It's not intended to work. To stop carbon pollution, you'd have to put the price so high that it would destroy capitalism. Like if it was $300 a ton for, for pollution, you know, it just, it, the math is not feasible. The real purpose was, was to keep the oil industry afloat and to keep us distracted from what we really need to be doing. If we just price carbon 
um, in, and not ban it, although we couldn't ban it right away, but not like when DDT became a threat to the environment, we banned it. When carbon became a threat to the environment, we just put a price on it and made it part of a market. Um, of course, we can't ban carbon overnight. As I say, we're a petroculture. We're, we're so immersed in it that it would take a long time. But if we had an intention to achieve that, then we could start to work in that direction. I want to give you an example of why carbon pricing doesn't work. Uh, car it's called carbon capture and storage. And what this technology does is it takes the carbon, say, from an um, oil sands plant or for a coal-burning power plant, instead of just uh, releasing it into the atmosphere, you capture it and then store it underground for forever or whatever, you know. And so that, that uh, prevents that amount of carbon from, from being released into the atmosphere. There are two such of facilities in Canada. One is, is Sask Power's Boundary Coal-Fired Power Plant near Estevan, Saskatchewan. The other, the more well-known one, is Shell Canada's Quest facility near Edmonton. This plant captures carbon, about a million tons a year, and um, from the Athabasca oil sands project near Fort McMurray and then it buries it in old mine shafts underground. However, it was extremely expensive and would not have been built without a $1.2 billion contribution from the federal and provincial governments. So it's not economically feasible. But if you, put a, if you had a carbon tax of $60 to $80 per ton of carbon, Shell figures well, we can make a profit doing that. We can build the um, carbon capture and storage facility, bury that, bury that um, carbon, and we don't have to pay the tax. So we can um, be bringing in 60 to $80 million a year that we wouldn't otherwise have. I hope you, you kind of understand how that works. And then we can continue to extract and export bitumen forever. We don't have to move towards zero carbon um, future and would never kick the fossil fuel habit. The, the latest distraction is clean growth. Certainly clean growth is good. Any technological developments that can move us away from dirty production is beneficial, but it's being made into a mantra. It says growth can continue as long as it's clean. Oh, and Clean growth is like low carbon, vague, right? You can, you can put on it whatever you want to. Perhaps that's why the Trudeau government loves it, because it's so vague. Trudeau, you know, I don't know if you know this, he even changed the name of the Environment Department from Department of Environment and Climate Change. It's now Department of Environment and Clean Growth climate change has just disappeared. And there's even a movement that I track in my book called the Clean Growth Century. Welcome to the Clean Growth Century. You know, Canada is going to, to be a leader. Once again, there is no strategy for moving to a zero carbon economy. 
Perhaps growth itself should no longer be the goal. Instead, we may have to look at things like redistribution guided by social justice and equity principles. And I know that's a, a very big discussion we could have, but I don't really deal with that in the book because what I'm mainly looking at is what the oil companies and the think tanks are doing. Framing the economy of the future as low carbon rather than zero carbon allows industry to get away with things we don't want, like further oil sands developments or more fracked gas projects, and of course the pipelines that must go with them. Rachel Notley's climate plan set an upper limit of 100 megatons of carbon dioxide emissions on the Alberta oil sands industry. This was significantly up from the 70 megatons that the industry was at and allowed, that was emitting in 2013. And that gives them a lot of leeway for expansion. It also gave the industry incentives for, to develop ways of cutting the carbon intensity of oil sands production and intensities becoming quite important there. That is, can we cut the amount of carbon we emit as we're mining or drilling for the bitumen? And they're figuring out ways of doing this. They might never even hit the 100 um, megaton uh, limit. But the thing is, they're pumping millions, tens of millions of dollars. Governments are putting in vast subsidies. And that's money that's not going towards the zero carbon future that we need. And regarding frack gas, I've made a vow to try never to say natural gas anymore. Natural gas used to mean that once a well was drilled, the gas, which is mainly methane, would flow to the surface and would be piped away. But this is no longer the case. We hardly have any natural gas anymore. Now, water, sand, and chemicals are pumped down the well under pressure, forcing the gas up. It's called hydraulic fracturing or fracking. So we should call the project in Kitimat, Kitimat LFG Canada, because liquefied frac gas. And that would alert us to the risks of methane leakage, earthquakes, and groundwater contamination, which are the um, concomitant um, uh, attributes of, of fracking. It gives the law, both of these give the lie to the benign sounding low carbon economy. And in all of this, we must remember that our accounting for carbon emissions here in British Columbia or Canada does not include the ultimate use of these products in Asia or wherever they go, which releases additional carbon. It still contributes to global warming and makes the zero carbon economy that much more, that much less attainable, sorry. I mentioned at the beginning, business's grand bargain, carbon pricing in exchange for pipelines. Well, Trudeau seems to be failing on both sides of this equation. He's not getting the carbon pricing that big oil wants, nor is he getting the pipelines that they want. 
So what I'm going to be looking forward to as the next election comes around is what, what oilists will say about him and whether they drop their support for him. So it'll be something interesting to, to, to watch. So let me just end with a few takeaways from, from this talk. So first we have to stop talking about carbon pricing as if it's the key to the zero carbon future. It's not and it never will be. We need to recognize that market-based approaches can be part of this solution, but they're far from being the main part. That function has to be reserved for stringent government regulation, like burning, like banning the burning of coal and impo imposing tough fuel standards. And there's many other things that can be done as well. Plus massive investment and ownership of clean energy. And I'll, I'll end on a, a Remembrance Day note. We can think of the effort to reach a zero carbon society to be as all encompassing as the war effort when the entire society pulled together to defeat the common enemy. Thank you. Thank you.